Flaps Podcast. In the June 2011 edition of Flaps, we had an interview with the curator of the RAF Museum at Cosford, Al McLean. You'll have gathered from the interview that we had a very good time. In fact, it was so good we spent so much time there, we had no room for it all in the podcast. So as a special treat, we've made a version that's separate from the podcast itself. This is over twice as long as the feature you may already have heard, so we thought we'd call it... Flaps Extended. Well, we're standing right next to what's possibly the jewel in our collection, which is the test flight aircraft. They're mostly unique or one or two off aircraft, which you can't see anywhere else in the world. Quite a lot of the aircraft we've got here are like that. But test flight, I think, the first hangar you come to on your tour is um, probably the, the, the principal reason for coming to Cosford. Is this, is this one of the best collections in the country? Oh, I've never been before. This is the first time I've been. It certainly looks very impressive. The main hangar over there is an amazing-looking building. But have, oh, you, have you got a have you got a good collection here? I think we have quite a good collection. You, you just referred to the Cold War uh, hangar, the National Cold War Exhibition, as yeah. we call it, and that is quite unusual. It's got all sorts of things in there. Somewhat flippantly, I once said more weapons of mass destruction in there than George <laughs> Bush found in Iraq, yeah, um, which is almost true. <laughs> None of them live, I hope. Um, well, we hope not. Yeah. <laughs> give them a kick as we go past and we'll see we have turned up the odd weapon that still had propellant in it from time to time but um not on display i'm pleased to say but in store uh, marked free from explosive they nevertheless had the, the igniting charge still inside them we think we've got all over all those now so well, no it's all so. safe I hope so. well i'll walk behind you okay you can go first right. so should we go into the first yeah. hangar where are we going we're going into test flight which is actually old hangar two don't ask me to explain the numbering system because it's got a bit complicated with all the new buildings we put up but it's an old wartime hangar and it's right at the top of the site. OK, well, we're here in the uh, test flight hangar. Al, there's a chap Elliot and I learned to fly with, and I'm sure every flying club's got one of these, a guy who could spot any of these ooh, dozen or so aircraft by silhouette from probably about three miles away. I have to get right close and see what the labels say to know what they are. But this is the Bristol 188. It, this is impressive. It's a one-off. They, they only made two of them, and this is the last one alive. But it's all actually made of stainless steel. Because most aircraft, of course, are made of aluminium, aren't they? Or, or alloys, or you know, but this is stainless steel, the same stuff as your sink is made of. Absolutely, yes. And possibly you could argue better that it was sinks. Uh, it was a very heavy <laughs> aeroplane. It's unique for another reason as well. It's actually not riveted together like most aluminium aircraft are. It's actually welded together. An idea that was way ahead of its time then. In fact, I don't think we've even produced a, a successfully welded together aeroplane yet. Does it fly like a kitchen sink? Is it Because it must be very heavy. Well, it didn't get to its design speed, that's for certain. I've got about three feet of stack of files describing why not and discussing whether the fitment of the ramp one temperature intake sensor should be fitted before flight 12 okay, you've or lost me now. you lost me now. I think I've lost me as well. <laughs> um, but you can see that it took an awful lot of civil servants to make the decision in those days. Perhaps it still does, I don't know, uh, on what was going to be done. And in fact, the aircraft never got to its design speed. It was going to investigate the heat problems that existed at supersonic flights. It never actually managed to do that. Uh, because they believed that there would be huge thermal problems. How do you get rid of all the heat you're generating when you're going at twice the speed of sound? And in fact, the problems were quite big. They were solved in Concorde, but it was quite a challenge to do that. Of course, Bristol, one of, as was once many UK manufacturers, did they all have different methods of manufacturing and designing? Oh, and different philosophies as well. Uh, the structures, uh, ge the gentleman in charge of the structures on this, uh, explained it to me like this. He said, de Havilland, the aerodynamicists were king and they had uh, supremacy in the design. At Bristol it was the structures people who had 
uh, the supremacy. So sometimes the Bristol aircraft may not look quite as pretty, but my word, they're strong. De Havilland aircraft, beautiful to look at, but of course we had things like the Comet disaster, which, and you couldn't argue that perhaps if structures had been a, the primacy in the design case, then perhaps that wouldn't have happened. Does anyone have the job of polishing it because it's ever so shiny? The volunteers do keep it quite clean for us. We're very lucky there. We have a about 200 volunteers in the Aerospace Museum Society and some of them work on aircraft, some of them do other things as well, they work on the final flight explainers, they give guided tours but we have got a very good team of aircraft cleaners and we're very grateful to them uh, and facing that there's a white one which still starts fights when we come in, when people come here about whether it was good, it was cancelled in 1964 so we'll never know and there's all sorts of other things in here that are again one off, the fly-by-wire Jaguar which is the sort of great-grandfather of Eurofighter Typhoon and then there are some weird things there's a, an aircraft where the pilot flew it lying down um, this was to get round the G-forces that people experience it works, the problem is it's damn difficult to fly when you're lying on your elbows because you can't reach anything and you also can't turn your head to look out which of course every fighter pilot wants to do There's an awful lot of what I assume are prototype or one-off aircraft in here, almost test designs before anything ever happened to them. Right, well, as prototype is exactly the right word for the aircraft behind me. That is the prototype Meteor. So you can say it's the world's first ever jet fighter right here. In fact, it wasn't the first Meteor to fly. By a strange quirk of coincidence, the second one flew before the first one, but that was a minor detail. That is the fir world's first ever jet fighter, really, or RAF's first ever jet fighter at any rate. What is amazing as you stand here, you can almost see the evolution and experience in aircraft design from, from the 40s onwards, how, how engineers and designers learn to make aircraft. Absolutely, and at the expense of the test pilot, the white one behind us there did kill one of its test pilots as they discovered how to make them work. It did work, but it died, died trying, as I might say. It was quite brave being a test pilot in the 50s and 60s, I think, because you, you really didn't know what was going to happen. And my goodness, when it all went wrong in the air, you had very little time to sort it out and come out of it in one piece. You mentioned uh, test pilots. There's a, a selection of uh, ejector seats over there. Have they, have they seen action? Uh, none of these ones have actually fired, so far as we know, although um, we do hope... Uh, to, to show shortly some movie footage of these ones actually or seats like them going out of the aircraft. If nothing else, Al, that would be a fantastic interactive part of the museum. Make them work. Well, 50p a go. There used to be a rig for a trainee jet pilots in the RAF which uh, involved firing up, up to roughly the height of the hangar roof and this rig used to come around. It used compressed air. It didn't use uh, the explosive cartridges. I'd love to know where that is now. <laughs> It'll be here soon. It'll be here. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, walk in tall and leave six inches short. So brilliant. I've got a couple of friends for whom that's unfortunately true, actually. Yeah, one friend had to eject from a jet provost in the circuit in Yorkshire, and he was uh, three-quarters of an inch shorter after that, two stone heavier. Oh, that was his excuse at any rate. <laughs> so we're still in test flight. Um, now, Al, this, is, this, this Jaguar here... Um, this is quite a special aircraft as well, isn't it? Well, it's a, again, it's a one-off. This is the um, active control technology demonstrator. Um, basically, this was the one that proved fly-by-wire worked for fighter aircraft. They took a standard Jaguar off the line and they modified it so that instead of the control column being connected direct to the control surfaces, it, everything went through a computer. Mm -hmm 
Once they proved that worked, they then actually made this aircraft unstable. There's a sort of big extension at the leading edge of route of the leading edge, and there's some extra weights down the back, so that it, as it gets to about Mach one, it becomes dynamically unstable, and the computers have to keep it level, and the test pilots had to try and upset it. I again think that's incredible. That would be a scary great. job, and that would be a hard day at the office, though, wouldn't it? That really, I really <laughs> want to know my ejection seat was working <laughs> properly under those circumstances. But the system worked beautifully, and was and, and is the forerunner of what's in Eurofighter Typhoon now. So, and the colour scheme is rather nice as well. It's in a beautiful red, white, and blue colour scheme. When it came to us, it was actually in drab olive green, and BAE Systems wanted to borrow it for. Uh, some tests in the end they didn't but they had promised if they did borrow it they'd repaint it for us so they made good on the promise even though they hadn't borrowed it they took it back to Wharton and they repainted it in their very high-tech paint facility and uh, the chap who did it actually had done it the first time out and we said oh thank you ever so much for doing that he said when you've painted your 67th um, Saudi Arabian hawk in sand and grass he said painting something in red white and blue is very great relief and we're very grateful for you giving it to do and it really does look fantastic well we've moved through into the next hangar which is warplanes and is this really the world's oldest Spitfire in front of us? Well, we've been telling everybody that for about five years, and no one's contradicted us yet. So if you know different, <laughs> please let us know. But we believe, yes, this is the world's oldest Spitfire. It's a Mark I, and stretching the definition slightly, it saw service in the Battle of Britain. And it's a magnificent plane. I mean, iconic, isn't it? I mean, everyone loves the Spitfire. I think so, yes. We've just celebrated the 75th anniversary of the first Spitfire flight, and uh, over 3,000 people turned up here at the weekend on Saturday just to have a look and to celebrate that with us. So, yeah, it's still a very powerful image for lots of people. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, warplanes in this hangar. We obviously can't go through all of them, but there's another absolutely crazy one behind us, which is a seaplane. Is this the Catalina, yeah? Yes, it's a flying boat, and yes, it was in service. This particular one was in service with the Royal Danish Air Force until quite late on in the 70s, but it was a wartime aircraft, and it made a huge difference to the Battle of Atlantic, both for the Americans and for the uh, British. It's quite unusual as well because it's got wheels as well as the hull. It's, uh, it's got wheel, retractable wheels as well. Oh, right, yes, this is a go anywhere, land on land or on water. And in fact, that would be quite comforting if you're out over the Atlantic and you get a bit of engine trouble. You can land on the water. It even carries platforms so that the flight engineer can get out and fix the engine uh, if there is a problem, change the spark plugs perhaps, or carry out a little bit of an oil change or something. So uh, the temptation must have been quite big, mustn't it, on a boring patrol? Let's land for a while, lads, do some fishing, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll head back home later. The plane we're stood in front of now, I'm, I'm quite surprised you've got one of these because you wouldn't obviously expect to find many of them left. This is a, a Japanese suicide attack plane. Yes, indeed, the uh, Yokosuka Oka, and uh, it's one of, I think, about three in the UK. Um, we actually did meet one of the pilots of these aircraft, and uh, that's slightly surprising. So obviously the first question is, how is he still alive? Yeah. The answer we got via his daughter, because he didn't speak English, was that when they completed their training, they were given a date on which they would fly. The date he was given was three days after the surrender, so he didn't fly. He said, however, that he would have been quite prepared to go had really? he been ordered to. It's amazing because it's, I mean, it's only a tiny little plane. It's, it's, ro it's rocket powered, isn't it? It's, just, it's, it's essentially a, a rocket with wings on it and a tiny place for the pilot to sit and, a, and quite sort of sinisterly a, a sight and right in front of the windscreen. 
Yes, indeed. This was carried aloft underneath a bigger bomber, Betty Bomber, and then the pilot would get into it at some point in the flight and then be released from his mother aeroplane, pointed towards the uh, enemy ship. He'd ignite his rocket pad and try and guide it into a high-value target. And, uh, and no, no landing gear, obviously, because none needed. No, this was a one-way ticket. You weren't coming back. I have some difficulty getting my head around that, but clearly it fitted in with the culture of the time and the, the nation involved. For several months... The Soviet Union has been setting up nuclear missile sites in Cuba. Well, we've moved hangars, and uh, I, I guess we've, we've jumped forward a few decades as well, because uh, we were in World War, and we're now in Cold War, which is, which is the amazing, very futuristic building uh, here. And um, how long has this been open? This is a relatively uh, new building, isn't it? Yeah, just over four years we've been open now. It opened in February 2007. Does it tell the full story of the Cold War? Because it's a big subject. It's a huge subject, and no, I don't think any building could tell the whole story. But we tried to tell a bit more than just the Air Force side of it. So we've got tanks and boats and uh, fighting vehicles in here, as well as missiles and rockets. And as uh, sometimes, as I said a little bit earlier on, several weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, we'll go and find those in a minute. It's an amazing space. It's, it's, it's huge. I mean, how, how big is this? Uh, how high, high is it to the ceiling, do you know? 25 metres, I think, to the ceiling. The, the trick was to get it over the tail of the Belfast, which is 15 metres. And the architect said, we can't just have the ceiling touching it. There's got to be a good big clearance. So the trick was to build a span that would actually take the Belfast, the biggest aircraft in here. If you want the size, that's about three quarters the size of a 747 uh, jumbo jet. So, so it's, it's a bespoke really... building to fit an aeroplane? Absolutely, yep. Designed for us by a very clever team of architects and display designers who put this together for us. Death and destruction on a scale unknown in the history of mankind. So obviously we've made our way to the weapon of mass destruction. It's a free-falling uh, thermonuclear bomb, a hydrogen bomb if you like, and it's called Yellow Sun and this is the Mark II version of it. And it's standing next to the big white aircraft that actually did the trials down in the Pacific when Britain became a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb power. It's... um. It's not kind of what I was expecting, really. I don't know what I was expecting, but it's it doesn't look that menacing, really, considering it's you know could unleash well unleash hell, couldn't it? That well, yes, that that, that destroyed cities, and it's dark green. It's got a flat end. It doesn't really look that menacing, as you say. But yes, this had the ability to wipe out cities. Round the other side, we've got something slightly smaller in yield that doesn't look as though it, you would do any damage to anyone. And uh, is, is this a popular exhibit? I'm guessing lots of people make their way to this, don't they? And, and stand and wonder what could have been? Well, yes, I'm not sure that everybody realises what it is because the caption boards got somewhat displaced from it, so it's not immediately obvious that you're looking at total annihilation when you stand next to this. <laughs> Nicely put. As well as all the aircraft and uh, hardware on display here, Al, there's, um, there's booths and, and video walls and interactivity, isn't there? Yes, we, we call them hot spots and scatter around through the display there are little presentations, little mini theatres if you will, where you can go inside and receive a presentation on an aspect of the Cold War. We're just standing outside the Cuban Missile Crisis but there are ones on protest, on the space race, on uh, Southeast Asia and all sorts of things scattered around throughout the displays. It really helps put a lot of this military gear into context. Well yes, because they're not just presentations on the inside, there's also quite a lot of facts on the outside and if you look at the protest one for example, it'll show you the effect of a nuclear bomb falling on Donington, for example, in Telford, and how that would affect the people round about had it happened. It's quite good for kids to be able to see the history brought to life. Well, we'd like to think so, yes. Uh, some of the images are a bit disturbing, but so far no one's complained. 
Okay, well, we're looking now at, um, at some impressive uh, hardware. These are, are nuclear missiles, aren't they? Yes, there's a Polaris lying on its side down there, but standing upright and looking very impressive is the intermediate-range ballistic missile Thor, which was what was called a dual-key missile. That is, the uh, Americans controlled the warhead and the Brits controlled the missile, the launching of it. So you needed both the Americans and the Brits present to uh, do their part of the thing to get the missile to go. We never actually used any of these, obviously, but uh, did we ever test them anywhere? Indeed we did, yes. The missiles and a crew were taken across to Vandenberg Air Force Base in California periodically and each squadron had to send someone over there from time to time to uh, actually test fire the missile out into the Pacific. And in fact the former technical curator here at the RAF Museum, Bill Roseby, some people might know, was actually one of the technicians, the lead technician, on a firing of a Thor missile at Vandenberg. So he's one of the people, occasionally comes in, one of the people who actually did fire one, if not in anger, at least for real. That Thor, sir? It looks like a single-stage rocket. How far would that go? Uh, it was about 1,200 miles. It wasn't. That's why they had to be based in Europe and couldn't be based in the United States because they couldn't reach the Soviet Union from the United States. Well, I was going to say, how on earth does it navigate itself? Because, you know, we're talking well before the days of GPS and you assume they wouldn't use any kind of radio beacon. So how did it find where it was going to? It did actually triangulate on stars. The amazing thing about this is the company that manufactured this fixing system was the American Spark Plug Company. From a small spark to a very, very big bang. Indeed. One thing I've got to ask you, Al, um, as I'm looking around now in the, the Cold War hangar, there's got to be a dozen aircraft and they're, and they're all sort of arranged very close to each other and at strange angles and hanging upright and it, it's a real sort of jigsaw puzzle almost of, of aircraft. How, how did you get them all in? Well, it's an interesting question that because when we first saw the plans, they were, as you say, quite complicated. And uh, we said, we need a model for this. Now, quite a lot of the aircraft you see in here aren't available or weren't available in models then. So we approached our volunteers, who are fantastic modelers. And within three weeks, we had 172nd scale models of every aircraft in this hangar and a 172nd scale model of the hangar itself. And the Belfast aircraft, the big one behind me, I don't think it was available then, certainly. One of the model makers made it from scratch and a beautiful model it was too, painted to look exactly like this then my colleague and I sat over this model table in the conservation centre most evenings moving the aircraft in and out and it was at that point we discovered an error that the architects had made with their CAD CAM we said we can't get the victory in where you've put it and they said yes yes, we've done it on our CAD CAM and we said yeah, the wings go in, the tail go in, it's perfect. We said, have you noticed that the wings and the tail are attached to each other and when you're avoiding frame 12 with the wings, the tail is busy colliding with frame 3? <laughs> and there was a very long silence from the other end of the phone and they said, uh, no, that's not right. And we said, yes, it is, come and look. And if we're wrong, show us where we've gone wrong. And they said, oh, you must have got the plans wrong or the wrong scale or something. They came and looked and eventually they admitted, yeah, there was an issue. Uh, which we were able to resolve and we, we sorted it out. But it did show the value of a good model and our model makers. And, and how, if you want to add something or move something around, because it's pretty full now, how, how would you go about that? Because there doesn't seem to be any visible way of getting anything in or, in or out. Well, we have to take the end wall down. <laughs> if you look at the, it's a fabric wall, very oh, yes, similar yeah, material yeah. to the sort of material the dome was made out of, actually. And you can see there's laces along the top. You undo the laces and drop the panels. 
Then you lift those steel girders, those pylon-y things out, by undoing some bolts at the top and bottom. It takes two or three days and costs about £40,000, this. Um, but you can get them out. And we did actually have to bring the MH53 helicopter over there in the corner behind me in uh, and take something else out. But yes, on the whole, it's not something we're in a hurry to do. I assume most of the aircraft here were donated to the uh, museum. Have you any idea of the actual worth of everything that's here, though? It's a jolly difficult question to ask. Yes, you're right, they were all donated. Um, They're either priceless or they're worth the scrap. Um, And I don't know how you put a value on that. I mean, to have the three V-bombers in one pace, Victor, Valiant and Vulcan, is unique. You can't do that anywhere else. So we've moved into Hangar 1 now. Uh, What's uh, what's in Hangar 1? What can we find in here, Al? Well, this is where we put the transport and training aircraft. It's one of the bigger hangars on site, and the transport aircraft tend to be bigger, so it's appropriate to put them in here. And in fact, we're standing under the nose of the world's first ever jet airliner, the de Havilland Comet. The the, yeah, beautiful aircraft, but flawed, very flawed, wasn't it? Well, in its original design, yes, there was a problem, and after a certain number of fatigue cycles, the uh, pressure cabin hull came under... This one went back to the factory. This one was actually in service with Air France. Went back to the factory, it was modified, it's got the round windows now, and it had a very successful career with the Royal Air Force, uh, or the procurement executive at least, as a trials and development aircraft, and it didn't actually retire until 1968. And uh, didn't the Comet disasters help Farnborough, the guys at Farnborough, become world experts in aircraft crash investigations? Oh, certainly a lot of techniques were pioneered there, uh, reconstructing the aircraft, but the clever thing was actually building a tank to do the pressurisation tests in. They built a water tank and blew the aircraft up and down repeatedly, simulating uh, 10 hours of flight in as many minutes. And that was what led to the discovery of the fatigue failure and how it happened, because this time it happened while they were watching it and they had all the pieces to look at. And to their great credit, the Royal Navy did recover the ones that crashed in the Mediterranean, or most of them, enough to enable the Farnborough Sun investigators to discover the cause. And by the end of it, yes, everything was known. To their great credit, de Havilland shared all this information with the world and it made air travel the sort of routine and safe experience that we have today. Uh, so you've got a great job, I think it's fair to say, curating this lot. It's a, it's a hell of a collection. You must love it. Well, what a great thing to do every day. Well, I have to say, if you've got to fall out of aviation into something, this is a jolly good job to fall into. Thank you ever so much for showing us round, Al. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, we, we've loved it. We thoroughly recommend a visit. So that's the full-length tour of Cosford with Al McLean. If you've not heard the actual podcast it came from, check out flapspodcast.com and find the June 2011 edition or search for it on iTunes. Thanks for listening.